It's found in Luke 19, 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Ready? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you who had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will bring an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Well, this morning marks the final Sunday in the season of Lent. We've been paying attention to some of the early scenes in Jesus' public life, noticing some clues that seem to be pointing ahead to the cross, where our Lenten journey will lead us. In many ways, the processional that we read about in Luke 19 actually begins 10 chapters earlier in a verse that marks a significant and a literal turning point in Luke's gospel. It's Luke 9, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As I was reflecting on this passage, for some reason, the 2007 movie The Bucket List came to mind uh, with Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. And the story, for those of you who haven't seen it, is basically about two terminally ill men who decide to escape from a cancer ward and head off on a road trip where they will cross off all the items on their bucket list. In other words, what do you want to do in this world before you kick the bucket? Right? And so one of them has a lot of money, and so they go skydiving, they go on a, on a safari, they go to visit the pyramids in Egypt, they get tattoos, they get all this crazy stuff they're doing uh, over the years. And I was thinking ab about this, that, uh, what, uh, you know, this passage tells us that when Jesus, uh, he knew his time to be taken up to heaven was coming soon. And it was like, you know, he could have done this kind of stuff, right? Like, he could have made his own, you know, 40% on Rotten Tomatoes version of a movie, you know, he could have done that. But instead, the Bible tells us that knowing that his time was coming soon, he decided to go to Jerusalem. That was his bucket list, if you will. When Jesus sensed his time on earth was drawing to a close, what did he do? He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Something that I noticed, I was looking at different translations of this verse, and I found that almost every translation is different because people are trying to get at what exactly was Luke trying to tell us about what was going through Jesus' mind at this point. So I'm going to read, uh, it looks like, eight different translations here for you. 
he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He made up his mind and set out on his way to Jerusalem. He gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He moved steadily onward toward Jerusalem with an iron will. Jesus passionately determined to leave for Jerusalem and let nothing distract him from fulfilling his mission there. Regardless of how it's translated into English, Jesus was going to Jerusalem with purpose and nothing would stand in his way. And so what I'd like us to do over the next few minutes is walk from Luke 9:51 right up through chapter 19 that Mel read for us this morning and see that all along the way are these little snapshots that point us to the fact that Jesus was continually focused on his goal. For example, in Luke 10:38, we read that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And some of these stories we'll be familiar with, but to remember that all along the way, all these little stories that we read about from Luke 9 to 19, there's this idea that Jesus is constantly going somewhere. Luke 13, 22, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Now at this point in the narrative, some Pharisees, which are the Jewish religious leaders, they tried to steer Jesus away, claiming that Herod, the region's appointed ruler, was out to kill him. They're like, Jesus, this is, Jerusalem is not a good place for you to go. Herod wants your life. But at this point, far from avoiding death threats, Jesus chooses to go on. He seems to know what awaits him anyways. He says, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. He knew it was awaiting him. He goes on in Luke 13, verse 34 to 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, all the way on his way to the city, Jesus was anticipating how he would be received. He anticipated the celebration that people would cheer and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that wasn't the only thing he anticipated. Luke 17, 11, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Luke 18, 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He goes on in chapter 18 to inform his disciples that he would be going to Jerusalem to die, to be mocked, and flogged and killed. He tells them in this, all this detail, and yet in verse 34, we read that the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. They're a little clueless about this. He's like, okay, so we're going to Jerusalem. And he's all, all along the way, the weeks and the months go by. He's telling them, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem. And he starts getting a little more specific the closer he gets. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. But they didn't understand. Luke 19, 28, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and this is where this morning's reading started, leading us into the events of Palm Sunday. All the way through, Jesus constantly moving forward, going to this place where he knew that he would be both celebrated and rejected. 
couple of years ago, I decided to create a little Palm Sunday meme for our church here. Because I know that for people who are maybe just coming into a church, this is your first Palm Sunday, you're like, what the heck is going on with these people? They're a little crazy, so I came up with this one. Uh, we don't always reenact scenes from the Bible, but when we do, we reenact them with palm branches. It's really the one time of the year that we get like physical with things. So here we've got the palm branches, and you know we enjoy it. It is what it is. So the story goes on. Jesus says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Now, kids, don't try this at home. Just so you know, you can't just go and take something that doesn't belong to you and say, well, the Lord needs it. You know, that doesn't work. It worked once. And unfortunately, it's in the Bible, so, you know. But you can't just go about doing this, right? I mean, it's interesting when you think about it. They didn't have, like, cars back then, but I think this is a person's mode of transportation. This is part of their livelihood. So it would basically be like Jesus saying, I want you to go down to the new car lot. I want you to take a car. I want you to hotwire it and just drive it away. And if anyone stops you, just say, the Lord needs it. But the funny thing is that they do this exact thing. And they use this little magic phrase, like, the Lord needs it. And they're probably like, this guy's going to, like, beat me. And they're just like, oh, okay, off you go. And so they take this colt and they walk away. Uh, maybe they believe the advice that if no one comes from the future to stop you from doing it, then how bad of a decision can it really be? So off they go. They take this donkey and they bring it to Jesus. Uh, they put their cloaks on it. They put their cloaks on the ground. We'll talk about that in another minute. But the Bible tells us that when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is what Jesus said was going to happen, right? A few chapters earlier, he says, you know, Jerusalem, you're not going to see me again until the day when you cry these words out. Now, the crowds were ecstatic, believing that what they were witnessing was the long-awaited arrival of God's chosen king. I was thinking about it as we're standing here with the palm branches, and I admit I'm looking around, passing judgment on people, um, that, you know, in that original crowd, like, they were excited. Like, they are excited. They're cutting branches off the trees. They're like, God is here to save us. They're not like this. This is some of you here this morning. It's just like, this is awkward. Why did I come to church this morning? Some of you probably came late to avoid this. You're like, oh yeah, Palm Sunday. I think I'll come half an hour late. You know? The kids are going nuts. The kids are loving it, right? I wonder if it was op- the opposite on the first Palm Sunday. I wonder if the kids were like, what's the big deal? A guy and a donkey, like who cares? I think the adults were the ones losing it. I think they were like, this is it. This is the time we've been waiting for. This is the king that we've been waiting for all this time. I mean, maybe. Maybe they didn't really know. Maybe it was just the fact that he was a healer, that he was a prominent teacher. I mean, we all get enamored by fame, right? Some of us have had an opportunity to meet famous people. I thought we'd actually have a little contest here this morning. I'll tell you about a famous person I met, and then if you think you met someone more famous, just throw your hand up, and we'll have a little contest. So uh, the short version of the story is uh, the week before I got married, uh, this is before there were things like, you know, hotels.com or whatever, and I wanted to book a hotel for my honeymoon, so I actually drove down to Hamilton and uh, went to actually see the, the hotel room that I was booking and, and paid, like, in person for it. And when we were there, there was all this, like, stuff corded off, these ropes and that, and we asked the person at the desk, like, what's going on here? And they said, well, the prime minister's arriving in, like, five minutes, and we're, we're like, this is awesome. So I get behind, like, the rope, and, and sure enough, John Kretchen walks in, and, and he shakes our hand, and he says, me and my friend who are down there, he's just like, good to see you out here, young guys. You know, he was excited to have us there. Meanwhile, we had no idea he was there. We just thought it's a little moment. So has anyone met someone more famous than John Kretchen? Anyone? Who have you met? 
Carrie Underwood. So much more famous than the Prime Minister. Okay, that's fair enough. Fair enough. So that was Chad. Uh, if you want to hear more of that story, come and find him after. Is there a hand here? Who? Irv? The president of Kenya, more famous than the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> Nadine, you woo for a lot of people. <laughs> okay, anyone else? Someone famous, someone famous. Oh, Melissa Burke. Bono, ooh. Bono kissed her. Now that's a story she's going to have to tell on another Sunday morning. Wow. No one's going to be able to pay attention to anything I say the rest of the morning. They're just like, what happened? How did Bono and Melissa Burke kiss? Okay, well, you can find out that story a little later on. Yeah, well, you can tell that. It's fine. I know the story, but I have the microphone so I can spin it however I want here. So the, these Jewish crowds, I mean, they've been waiting a long time for someone to come and rescue them. And I thought, you know, there's two kind of seasons of the church year that we really observe. One is Lent, which we're getting towards the end of here, leading up to Easter. And the other is Advent, which leads up to Christ's birth at Christmas. And during the season of Advent, we talk about the longing and the waiting of the Jewish nation. That for so long, for centuries, they've been waiting for direction. They've been waiting for deliverance. And then as we, we discovered, like that was, you know, we talk about Jesus' birth. But really the number of people who would have been aware that God was breaking into the scene at Jesus' birth were very small, very small cast of characters there's, right? But at Lent, all of a sudden, we've had for, for years, Jesus has been walking around, he's been teaching, he's been performing these miracles, he's been announcing the kingdom in his word and in his deeds. And so the crowd of people, the number of people who anticipated that finally, after all of these centuries, God is coming through, that number was swelling. They were waiting for a new king to come and to replace the current one, to give them back their national pride. And so this is how John records the same events um, of Palm Sunday. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They've been waiting a long time for this. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't the King of Israel at all. Herod was a king. Caesar was the king. Jesus wasn't a king. It's interesting, this word Hosanna that we sing. Originally, it meant something a little different than, than what we use it for. We kind of sing it and, and wave the branches like Hosanna is like praise God or something, or, or we, we're celebrating God. But it wasn't quite an exclamation of praise as it is in our songs. In the Hebrew, it was more of an imperative statement, meaning save now. It's almost like a command, like do this. You are the king that we've been waiting for. Save us now. Like now is the time to get out from under the oppression of the Romans. Well, every year on Palm Sunday, we remember this story and we have our own celebration. Of course, even if a cozy church sanctuary isn't quite the same as a dusty dirt road, in order to get to the heart of this final stretch of Jesus' ministry, we try to put ourselves in the story. As Jesus rode into town on the back of that donkey, the crowds believed that God was finally coming through for them, just like he had promised. And they were right to believe so, but not exactly right. 
what they wanted was something different than what they got. It's interesting when you think about this in the Bible. If you open your Bible, there's a, there are little headings that are in there, and those aren't in the original, but you know, the translators put those in there to help us follow the narrative. And, and in most translations, it will say like the triumphal entry. Now, a triumphal entry in Roman culture was a big deal. I have a picture here. This is, now this statue comes from about a, a century after Jesus. This is Marcus Aurelius uh, riding on a horse. And so you can see, like, this is what would have happened. Like, when, the, when a Roman king, when a ruler would have come into, into a city or to a town, especially a capital, you know, you've got this mighty, beautiful, strong horse. You've got, like, this royal garb strapped over its back and, and the king riding, you know, amongst the crowds. And the crowds would have been cheering and they would have been waving flags and they would have had the carpet rolled out in front of them and the whole deal. And so I can find a picture of someone riding a donkey, and, well, let's just be honest, it's not that impressive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is, this is basically what Jesus looked like, right? This small animal, a colt that had never even been ridden. And they don't have, like, fancy royal garb to put over it. Someone just throw their coat on the back of the colt, right? And there's Jesus sitting on it, looking a little awkward. But the crowd is going crazy. The triumphal entry was almost certainly intended to mimic the emperor's own entry, both on Jesus' part and possibly by the crowd as well. Why did Jesus want to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Why not just keep walking? It's not like it's a faster mode of transportation. Because he wanted to say something. He wanted to say that my version of triumph is different than yours. I don't need to triumph over the people with might and power and authority and wealth. My triumph is humble. It's peaceful. It's grace-filled. All of this took place during the final stretch of Jesus' journey into the ancient holy city of Jerusalem. Toward the end of our reading, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. We hear this phrase a couple of times in Luke's gospel. This idea that, that what Jesus was about was somehow hidden from their eyes. He was telling them plainly what would waited him in Jerusalem. And it says, well, they didn't quite understand what he was saying. And here he's talking to this, he's talking about walking into Jerusalem and the crowds are around him and they're cheering. And he's like, you're not seeing what's going on here. Miroslav Volf writes that tomorrow may reveal insights about yesterday that are hidden from us today. And we can understand any given event adequately only from the perspective of the whole, which is to say when our lives and history have run their courses. And so in a sense, you can't blame the disciples. You can't really blame the crowds for getting excited. They didn't know what was going to come next. Their eyes were closed. They didn't see it. And whether something is a blessing or a curse can be difficult to tell in a given moment. In the midst of the celebrations, Jesus spoke about the city's pending destruction they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now listen, knowing what lay ahead of him, why was Jesus so focused on Jerusalem? Like knowing what was going to happen, that not only would he be mocked and flogged and led off to his death, but that the, the crowds who gathered to cheer him on his entry would eventually just turn on him and abandon him completely. Why would he go? I read this great line 
the author Edward Carpenter this week, love, if worth anything, seems to demand pain and strain in order to prove itself and is not satisfied with an easy attainment. Love wants to show itself. Now, this isn't about deriving pleasure out of pain, but acknowledging the genuine need that a loved one has and being willing to personally bear the brunt of the burden. It's just how love works. A couple of months ago, I was driving Owen and his girlfriend back to uh, University in Hamilton at McMaster, and I was dropping them off, and she just got out of the back seat, and, and I popped the trunk, and she just grabbed her bags, and I said, aren't you going to go help her? And he said, oh, no, I asked. She said she didn't need any help. I said, okay, life lesson. Pay attention right here, kid. You don't ask. You just do it. All right? Love doesn't ask. Love just does. And love Love does a lot. Love does as much as it can possibly do. Now, of course, carrying luggage and carrying a cross are on two entirely different planes. But as we just heard, love is not satisfied with an easy attainment. Jesus loved not only his closest disciples who would abandon him, not only the the fickle crowds that would walk away, but Jesus loved every single one of us. And I imagine that at least part of what might have been going through his mind on the way to Jerusalem is that if the cross is what humanity needs, then the cross it is. Give thanks to the Lord, the psalmist wrote, for he is good. His love endures forever. And it's a good thing too. While the journey to Easter is filled with reminders of God's unfailing love, it's also filled with reminders of our tendency to waver. And this is part of the the tension in Palm Sunday. That Jesus knew how fickle the crowd's adoration was. He knew how this story was going to end. And he knows how fickle our adoration is. How we'll stand here and sing songs and wave palm branches and then show a complete lack of faith this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day. You're waving branches today, but you'll turn your back on me tomorrow. But if the cross is what you need, then the cross it is. Just as he still welcomed their praise, he welcomes ours, our broken hosannas. Now Palm Sunday is about a procession. And now we have one of our own to begin. Over the last five weeks, we've been slowly journeying through these early chapters of Luke's gospel, slowly making our way up to Holy Week. I heard a great quote this week. I don't think you're ever somewhere without going somewhere. And I was thinking about, you might be sitting here this morning saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm actually not. I'm literally sitting still. So right now, I'm not going anywhere. But you are going somewhere. We're all going somewhere. Regardless of how we're running or driving or, or walking or sitting still or sleeping, we're going somewhere. Where are we going? Where is life taking us? What is the path that is out in front of us. Are we journeying on toward Jerusalem or are we journeying somewhere else? During the season of Lent, we've been paying attention to how everything in Jesus' life seemed to be pointing to the cross. And now it's time for us to go there with him. That's what Holy Week is. We celebrate and wave the branches. And then we begin to walk towards the cross. And what happens between now And Good Friday, when we gather here in the morning, is kind of up to us. 
And it's my hope and prayer that we would all take this week, take this opportunity, and determine to walk steadfastly with our faces set, steadily onward toward Jerusalem with an iron will. Are we ready to go to the cross with Jesus? Are we willing to follow him both in times of celebration and crucifixion? I'd invite you to stand. Lord, this morning speaks to the highs and the lows of our faithfulness. It speaks to how excited we are to know you, but there's a shadow in there of our complete lack of interest in knowing you. It speaks of our dedication and determination, but it also speaks to our wandering and wavering. Lord, I ask that for every person in this room, whether they have been following you throughout this entire season of Lent or whether this is a new invitation this morning, that we would use these next few days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday to reflect on our willingness to pick up our own cross and follow you. Lord, I ask that you would draw us close to yourself this week, that you would help to prepare our hearts as individuals, as families, as groups of friends, as a community of faith, prepare our hearts to reflect on what you've done for us on Good Friday. As we gather around tables this morning, use us to encourage one another in our faith journey. Help us to push one another on, to be resolute, to be steadfast, to be determined on our journey following in your steps. Amen.